The period after the era of slavery and freedom is generally referred to as the Reconstruction Period. It began after the Emancipation Act of 1865 and ended in 1919 after World War I. It is called Reconstruction due to various reasons. First, it is a period of renewal, rebuilding, reforming, and reordering of American society, especially Southern society. Second, it is a period of giving formerly enslaved people access to American democracy, freedoms, and equality. Third, it is a transitional period for African Americans to reconstitute family units. Fourth, it is an era of reflection when newly freed slaves looked back on their experiences during slavery. The major writers of the period included Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Charles Chestnut, James Weldon Johnson, Ida Wells Barnett, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. The major recurring themes included a quest for freedom and access to the American dream and democracy, and a related theme is dissimulation, masking and passing. Passing is where very light-skinned African Americans passed for whites in order to gain certain privileges and opportunities. Another theme is spiritual development and temperance. According to Booker T. Washington, the greatest ambition of older blacks after emancipation was to learn to read the Bible. And to Du Bois, emancipation seemed to the freedmen a literal coming of the Lord. It was the Lord's doing. The next common theme was the past as an informing part of the present. And the fourth major theme was suffrage and women's rights, as well as an education as means to attaining social, cultural, economic, spiritual, and political freedom, which included the responsibility of educated persons, particularly writers, to African American communities. The Reconstruction period is also characterized variously to reflect the competing and diverse perceptions and preoccupations of the period. Enter Aaliyah, it is described as the nadir of black experience. Nadir, from the Arabic word nazir, means the lowest point. It is the opposite of zenith and refers to the repeal and supplanting of most of the Reconstruction Act with Jim Crow laws. Du Bois adds that most freed slaves were poor and received little help. To be a poor man is hard, he says, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardships. The period is also described as women's era. Women like Ida B. Wells Barnett, Anna Julia Cooper, Pauline Hopkins, and Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson worked alongside Du Bois and Washington and with the Black Women's Club or Movement to create a literature that engaged in then-current debates that influenced lives and attitudes. Wells Barnett's Red Record, Lola on Discrimination, and Southern Horror's Lynch Law in All Its Phases stand with Washington's Atlanta Exposition speech and Du Bois' Song of the Smoke for wisdom and depth. She advocates boycott, emigration, and the press as tools for racial justice. The age of Washington and Du Bois is another name for the Reconstruction period. As Gates Jr. explains, during this period, a debate arose among African Americans over the merit of Washington's privileging industrial education and economic advancement against W.E.B. Du Bois's advocacy of political agitation and leadership from the talented tenth, that is, a group of exceptional or educated blacks, such as teachers, lawyers, and nurses, who would return to the black community to lead, guide, and help their fellows gain upward social mobility. Key positions of the debate are summarized on the slide. 
Booker T. Washington advocated accommodation of separate and unequal philosophy in exchange for peace, toleration, and economic cooperation, and for technical and vocational education for African Americans. W.E.B. Du Bois, on the other hand, advocated the opposite of these. He insisted on activism and eradication of racism, racial subjugation, and all forms of inequality. He called for liberal education to train teachers, nurses, doctors, and other professionals who would return to educate and pull up the rest of the black community. Do you agree with Booker T. Washington's idea that more could be accomplished by accepting the status quo? Reread Du Bois's criticism of Booker T. Washington and explain why you agree or disagree with him. What would you have advocated or done to advance the cause of a minority group during such a difficult and challenging time? In addition to the preceding descriptions of the Reconstruction period, the period is also perceived as a time of racial double consciousness or two-ness, of a divided awareness of one's identity. W.E.B. Du Bois introduced this term, and he theorized that one ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled stirrings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. Others also saw at the time as going beyond stereotypes. James Weldon Johnson, for instance, called for more sophisticated literature and a need to break away from the Dunbar tradition, which is defined as accommodation, imitation, and limitation to the use of dialect, humor, and pathos. Finally, many saw the period as a time of strategies for survival and coping, of expansionism and of intertextuality, repetition, and revision of ideas and motifs. For example, Booker T. Washington and critics such as William L. Andrews and Richard Yarbrough have suggested that post-bellum Reconstruction writers were inclined to depict slavery as a crucible through which African Americans were fired and refined. Instead of the hell on earth that antebellum slave narrators claimed slavery was like, Washington, for example, termed slavery a school from which his fellow blacks had graduated with honors. The question is, why this revision? Perhaps he wanted slaves to be perceived as a resource rather than as debilitated individuals fit only as wards of the state. Again, the rhetorical triangle can help clarify Washington's audience and purpose. If Washington's subject is up from slavery and his purpose is cooperation and jobs for freed slaves in the South, what events and episodes do you think he will include in his narrative to make his argument? How will he try to persuade his audience that the freed slaves are employable and reliable? Much of Washington's purpose can be discerned from his Atlanta Exposition Address, where he says his purpose is to cement the friendship of the races and bring about hearty cooperation and industrial progress between them. He says one-third of the population of the South is black, and he urges them to cast down their bucket where they are, meaning they should stay and work in the South to promote progress. Throughout Up From Slavery, Washington repeats and revises other key themes found in antebellum slave narratives. In Chapter 1, he argues that slaves and slave owners, as well as the whole nation, are victims of the system of slavery and therefore are not to blame. Presumably, people are not responsible for their actions, but are mere victims. Consequently, human beings are more or less products and victims of their environment, of institutions and systems. Do you agree? Washington argues further that ex-slaves were not bitter, but loyal and of a kindly and generous nature. 
In addition, he redefines success and says it is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. He goes on to advance what he calls the great human law, that merit, or success as he redefines it, will ultimately be recognized and rewarded. Like antebellum slave narrators, Washington thematizes an intense longing to be educated. He embarks on a quest for education. He leaves home, travels 500 miles by foot to Malden, encounters challenges such as segregation, hunger, homelessness, and doing menial jobs to survive before he finally attains his goal. However, he advocates industrial education for African Americans as a quick economic solution to self-reliance and lifting up oneself from poverty and hardships. Now ponder these questions. How does Booker T. Washington characterize slavery in Up From Slavery? And how accurate and realistic is Washington's historical perspective in the narrative? What end does this perspective serve? Why does, or did, Washington take such a different approach than Aquiano, Douglas, and Jacobs in his portrayal of slavery? Do you agree with his revisions and conclusions? Why or why not? What consequences are likely to follow if people take his revisions seriously? What consequences are likely to follow if people ignore his revisions? Use the rhetorical strategy of audience, purpose, and subject to discuss Washington's Up From Slavery. Now let's switch gears and use the rest of this presentation to focus on other major authors and works of the period, specifically Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by Johnson, We Wear the Mask, and Sympathy by Dunbar, and The Goford Grapevine by Chestnut. James Weldon Johnson is recognized as a versatile writer across several genres. As a poet, he is renowned for authoring the masterpiece commonly known as the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. In addition, his essay, Preface to the Book of American Negro Poetry, provides a definitive statement of the need for African American literature and art. His reputation as a novelist, however, rests on his only published novel, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, which thematizes passing by presenting a mulatto who finds himself in a dilemma. His mother is black while his father is white. He yearns to fulfill his responsibility to his mother's race, but also wants to pass as a white man in order to have free access to the rights and privileges inherent in living life as a white man. Passing may be defined as crossing the color line, the phenomenon of those who are legally defined as colored, but who pass as whites by simply changing their racial identity to be all white or vice versa, but not both. For mulattoes, this meant having biracial identity, but not allowed to claim both as a complete identity, but to claim only one and be denied the other. For the passer, who is both white and black selves, the dichotomies inherent in the color line become his identity. During the Reconstruction period, passing carried great racial, social, economic, and legal benefits. It enabled the passer to move from marginalized to mainstream, from other to privileged, and from colored to white in order to avail himself or herself of every opportunity to make a white man's success, and that, if it can be summed up in any one word, means money. In the novel, the nameless protagonist manifests all the types of passing. Sometimes his passing is unintentional. People simply mistake him for a white man. Other times, it is intentional, where he deliberately passes as a white man. 
Initially, his passing is temporary. He moves back and forth between the two races to show the economic, social, and political disparities, inequities, and injustices. These stark contrasts create conflicts with self, with others, and with the environment. Finally, he passes permanently to live as a white man, to live a life of concealment, of disguise, and of wearing the mask, forced to choose one parent's race and reject the others. In the novel, the narrator is unnamed. He is nameless because he has no stable identity. He's a self that constantly changes and is unstable and decentered. The only thing constant in his life is change, and his multiplicity of selves epitomizes the contradictions and absurdities inherent in passing. He is the embodiment of two races and the irrationality of the great gulf separating them. In the end, he is dissatisfied with his choice and concludes his narrative by bemoaning his vanished dream, dead ambition, sacrificed talent, and exchanging of his birthright for a mess of pottage. As Johnson explains in his essay preface, the theme of passing provides insights into the unsuspected fact that during the Reconstruction period, prejudice against the Negro was exerting a pressure which, in New York and other large cities where the opportunity was open, was actually and constantly forcing an unascertainable number of fair-complexioned colored people over into the white race. Our next author, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, is known for being poet laureate of the Negro race, for his poetry and lively readings, and for subtly confronting readers with truths such as wearing a mask, bondage, and quest for freedom. Like other major writers of the period, he was an accomplished writer of several genres, including the short story, novel, essay, and poetry. Traditionally, his poetry is divided into dialect poems and those written in standard English. Two of his well-known poems written in standard English, We Wear the Mask and Sympathy, are particularly relevant to our discussion of prevalent themes and sentiments of the Reconstruction period. Reread the poem, We Wear the Mask, on the slide and ponder the following questions. Wearing a mask suggests a life of concealment, dissimulation, pretense, affectation, distortion of one's genuine emotions, and putting on a face of seeming happiness. How is this both a racial phenomenon of the period, as well as a universal theme applicable to all people of all time? Why do people wear masks? Have you ever worn a mask for other people? Give specific examples of masks that people wear. Social masks, economic masks, academic masks, religious masks. Do people still wear a mask? Why? Notice how Dunbar cleverly used the last word in line six. It is natural to read the line as, why should the world be otherwise? But he rather used a similar word, overwise. Why? Who or what does the we in the poem refer to? Why the use of the collective we? Who lies and to whom? White people? Black people? The wearer? Readers? What does the concealment or hiding of cheeks and eyes reveal about the emotional state of the speaker? The speaker says, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile. Note the use of contrasts and juxtapositions of contradictory emotions. What are the ramifications of such concealment and contradictions? Use the concepts of doubleness or double consciousness and themes of appearance versus reality, dissimulation, and identity to discuss the ramifications and implications of wearing a mask. Are the two selves the same person? Do they cohere to form one's complete identity? 
or is the contradiction and incongruity itself paradoxically one's identity? Like We Wear the Mask, the poem Sympathy not only addresses prevalent themes and sentiments of the Reconstruction period, but crosses racial and cultural lines. Describe the poem's literal scene and situation. What is the speaker's mood and why? What is the metaphorical or symbolic meaning of the poem's literal scene and situation? In what is the speaker imprisoned? Traditions and prejudices? Poverty? Classism? Segregation? Body in which the soul is trapped? Addictions? Limitations imposed by culture? Publishers? Editors? The literary marketplace? Exigencies of the time? Why does each stanza begin and end with the phrase, I know? The word know means to be assured of, to be acquainted with, and to be very familiar with something. Etymologically, it is derived from the Latin word nocere, or gnosir, or gnosis, which means truth. It is the act of moving from ignorance to knowledge. The speaker is very aware of his bondage and his quest for freedom, but feels powerless, even though he makes every effort to escape his plight and fully enjoy the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with life, liberty, unalienable rights, and the pursuit of happiness. Is this why the title asks for sympathy? What is or are the themes of the poem? Our last author, Charles W. Chestnut, is generally regarded as the most influential late 19th and early 20th century African-American fiction writer. He is renowned for his use of literary realism, a skill which made William Dean Howells compliment him as a literary realist of the first order and use his writing to exemplify American literature during the age of realism. Like other African-American writers, Chestnut depicts the rural South, black folk traditions, passing, dialect, superstition, black life, and survival strategies during the Reconstruction period. In the story, The Wife of His Youth, Chestnut explores the dilemmas, frustrations, and challenges that the period posed for African Americans. He introduces the term blue veins to describe with irony and pathos the pretensions of light-skinned, mixed-raced, upwardly mobile African Americans who not only formed exclusive societies, but also discriminated against those with darker complexions than their own. The story recounts the life of the leader of one such society who, after decades of interracial prejudice, repents and returns to his dark-skinned plantation wife who toiled and moiled with him during their youth. The passing of Grandison, as the title suggests, thematizes passing, which a slave uses to trick his master and free his entire family. Likewise, Chestnut's first important fiction, The Gooford Grapevine, uses a similar trickster motif. The trickster is a character who wears a mask and pretends to be dim-witted, docile, and ignorant, but in reality is the opposite, clever, wise, and discerning. The protagonists of the two stories, Grandison and Uncle Julius McAdoo, respectively, fit this characterization. They epitomize imaginative ingenuity in order to preserve themselves, their families, and community during the Reconstruction period. Uncle Julius, for example, shrewdly appropriates trickery and a conjure story based on hoodoo beliefs and practices to try to gain economic advantage in his reconstructive present. Noted for its use of humor, the Gooford grapevine uses juxtaposition to draw a sharp but realistic contrast between the narrator, John, and Uncle Julius. John is rich. From his genteel speech, Latinate vocabulary, and enlightened business methods, one can tell that he is educated. 
He purchases the old plantation for his convenience and sees the investment and labor as commodities to be exploited for profit. Uncle Julius lives off the old plantation and sees John as a threat to his livelihood. His lower class status and earthy discourse reveal the difference between him and John. Unlike John, who relies on and receives professional advice, Julius resorts to tales of conjuration and superstition. Presumably, his relation to the land is not for profit, but lived attachment to it. It is his home. He portrays himself as a naif in an attempt to trick and scare John off the plantation so he can continue to live off it. As we conclude this module, consider what was happening during the Reconstruction period that influenced the literature. How the literature is an imaginative and creative representation of the then society and its aspirations.